Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I uh, want you to know we made it. Thank you. I think a round of applause is they 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 made it. Graham and uh, Grant did real well. I wasn't sure that uh, they were going to make it out alive this morning, but uh, other than that, it was great. Um, in all honesty, I was talking to somebody this morning and just told them, <clears throat> I've always, I feel like I've appreciated what Terry does in her role as mom and, and wife and, uh, and have a, a greater appreciation for that. But I tell you where I really gained an appreciation this week in kind of balancing those responsibilities along with working our single parents who manage both of those responsibilities uh, at the same time. I have a whole new admiration and respect for folks who do that. Uh, on a day-in and day-out basis, uh, you are in my prayers <laughs> and uh, really do uh, have a great admiration for your devotion. So as we consider our passage uh, from last week and really this week uh, as well, I think most of us have an appreciation for the shepherding imagery that Jesus chooses to use. Uh, shepherding was a very common uh, occupation in Palestine. Even for those who didn't do the work, most everybody was affected by the profession in, in some way. Sheep were a source of food for the people. Their milk was actually used to drink. The wool was used to make clothes. And sheep were the most uh, commonly used uh, sacrificial animal in the religious system. And so, needless to say, even if you were not a shepherd, your life was somehow impacted by the sheep that they cared for. And so when Jesus uses this imagery, he has an immediate connection with his audience. But I think even more important than that, perhaps, is the way God chose to use that same imagery to reveal things about himself in the Old Testament. He uses that shepherding imagery to actually describe who he is. One of the most common, probably the most famous that I can think of, is what you see David write in Psalm 23 when he says, The Lord is my shepherd. Right? Isaiah will use similar language when he talks about uh, God as the, the shepherd over his flock. And all throughout the Old Testament, it talks about the shepherd of Israel, speaking of God. And so, God, so Jesus was not only using this imagery to make a connection, a, a familiar connection with his audience. He was also using it because it was relevant to who he is as God. As I thought through that and looked at different passages, there was one that really stuck out to me that, at least in my thought, my own opinion, I think Jesus might have had in mind as he's speaking to this audience of people that we've been looking at together in the Gospel of John. And let me show you what I mean. Turn to Ezekiel, if you would. Ezekiel chapter 34. Just keep on going past Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, and you're going to run right into Ezekiel chapter 34. I want to show you what I'm talking about. As I read through this, and we're just going to look at different excerpts from chapter 34, I want you to see how close the connection to what Ezekiel's writing is to what we've been looking at in John's Gospel. So Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 1, says this. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God. Woe to shepherds of Israel! 
who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. Now, as I read that, I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like the Pharisees, doesn't it? It sounds like what Jesus says about them when he describes them as, as thieves and robbers who lead the sheep to destruction. So the words of Jesus and the words of Ezekiel seem to be describing the same kind of people, don't they? And I want you to notice that the condemnation in Ezekiel is just as strong as what you find in John's gospel. Look at over at verse 10. Still in 34, verse 10, it says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I shall demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I deliver my flock from their mouth, and they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among the scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. Jesus is, or God is describing in Ezekiel what Jesus has come to do and what he will tell us about. And there's an interesting verse in Ezekiel that I think draws a, a great connection to what is fulfilled in the life of Christ. Go over to Verse 23. So God has said these these false shepherds have not done what shepherds are supposed to do and that he would judge them and and rescue his sheep. And here's how he's going to do it. Look at verse 23. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and he will be their shepherd. The religious leaders had failed to shepherd God's people. And so he promises in verse 23 to send a true shepherd, a good shepherd, if you will. Now, this is written after the time of David. So what he's saying in this verse is that he will be this good shepherd in the line of David. And he will feed the sheep himself and he will be they're good shepherd. I believe Jesus steps on the scene, perhaps with this in his mind, and he says, I am the good shepherd, and I will lay down my life for my sheep. If you will, turn over to John chapter 10, and let's see how that unfolds. John chapter 10, we'll pick up where we left off last, John chapter 10, verse 11. So if you'll look at that with me, and, and we'll read it together. John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus, still speaking, says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. 
And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one is taking it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. You probably noticed as we read just those eight verses that there was a phrase repeated four times. Bill mentioned it this morning. It says, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. It's as if Jesus is explaining a unique attribute to what it means to be a good shepherd. And then almost as an exclamation point, he follows it by saying, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Four times in just those eight verses. So there's obviously something important here, and I want us to look at that together. As is often the case, sometimes what is true is best understood by comparing it to what is false. And that's exactly what Jesus does in order to help us understand the importance of what he has to say here. He explains in verse 11 what, that the hireling abandons, but the good shepherd protects. He makes that comparison. He says, the hireling abandons, but the good shepherd protects. Now, Jesus tells us why the hireling abandons. He says, when the wolf is sighted, the hireling leaves because he's there for the money, not for the sheep. His primary motivation is personal gain. And, and he's willing to do the job that he's hired for just so long as it is within the parameters of his own self-interests. In other words, when the personal cost gets too high, the hireling quits. So let me ask you, how secure do you feel under the care of the hireling? Not so much, right? Because your protection is not his primary motivation. And if you think about it, we've seen evidence of this throughout the Scripture and what we've looked at over the last several weeks. Last week, it was obvious that the the Pharisees were far less concerned about the blind man. They would have preferred that he be not healed at all than to have been healed on the Sabbath. Instead of pulling him in to protect him inside the flock, they cast him out. The woman caught in adultery was actually used as bait in order to trap Jesus. They were so unconcerned about her welfare that they were actually willing to sacrifice her life in order to preserve their power and influence. And I don't know about you, but as I think through and consider that, it sounds a lot like what Ezekiel wrote about in chapter 34. But the good shepherd is different. The hireling abandons. The good shepherd protects, even going as far as to to sacrifice his own life in order to save the life of a sheep. And I want you to notice that what Jesus is saying here goes beyond simply risking his life in the face of danger. That's admirable. Many good shepherds would have, have done just that. But for them, protecting their own life would have been ultimately more important than protecting the life of the sheep. But Jesus doesn't risk his life. The scripture says he lays his life down. 
the words used here bring with it the, the idea of substitution. He sacrificed his life, actually laying it down in order that he might save the life of his sheep. And he goes on in verse 14 to explain that this is not just some blind devotion, but the sacrifice is made because of an intimate knowledge. Whereas the hireling is unconcerned, the good shepherd is intimately acquainted. I know my own, Jesus says, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. The Greek word for know here is gnosko. It it means literally to, to know or to understand completely. The point being that this knowledge is not just some passing acquaintance. It's a deep understanding like the knowledge that you might have within the relationship of a family. For example, my family knows things about me that no one else knows. <laughs> my habits, my hobbies, my likes, my dislikes. In fact, one of the things that they know about me, just a simple thing, is that, that one of the things I enjoy in life is getting the mail every day. <laughs> I don't know why, but I love to go out and get the mail every day. It's like Christmas every day. <laughs> but I bet no one else in this room knew that interesting fact, did you? That's because you don't know me like my family knows me. That's just a simple example, but the point is that their understanding of who I am goes much deeper. It's much more complete than anyone else in my life. And that's the kind of knowledge that the good shepherd has for his sheep. And it's also the reason that he is willing to lay down his life for those he knows and those he loves like family. Because dads, moms, if your child was in grave danger, would you sacrifice your life to save them? Of course you would. And so would God. His sacrifice is that of a loving father for his child. But but even deeper than that. In verse 15, Jesus compares his love for us, the sheep, to the love found in the fellowship of the Trinity. He says, I know my own and my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father. Now, I hear this and and that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. Because when I think about it, I think, but the Trinity is one, right? How could we ever share the same kind of fellowship with Christ that he shares in the fellowship with his father? Well, well, there's actually a verse, as I thought about this, in fact, this week, that I came across that I think answers that question, at least it does for me. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to what it says. It says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What that tells me is that we are united with Christ through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And like the Holy Trinity, one can no longer act without somehow affecting the other. Becoming one spirit is based on that that same concept that is expressed in the marriage relationship between a man and a woman when it says that they cleave to one another. That word cleave brings with it the idea of of being glued together. 
becoming one through a bond so strong that that who we are individually takes on the shape of who we are together. Where one cannot act without somehow affecting the other. Some of you know I enjoy woodworking. And one of the things that uh, is true about woodworking is uh, the glue that you use to bond wood together actually creates a bond stronger than the original wood itself. So one of the things I did this week just to demonstrate this for you is I took two pieces of wood and I glued them together. And I let it set up nice and strong. And then I went out to my shop and I I took a a chisel, a hammer, a, a wedge, and I took these two pieces of wood and I beat the tar out of them. My goal was to separate them on the joint that I had created. Okay? But what you'll find will happen is that the original wood will fracture, but the glue joint will stay intact. Because the joint itself is stronger than the original wood. Well, the point to that is that when a bond this strong exists, those are no longer two pieces of wood. That's one board held together by a bond stronger than the wood was originally. And that same thing is true in our relationship between the good shepherd and his sheep. Bonded together, if you will, by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we are held together by a love that cannot be broken. Even if it means that the life of the shepherd is broken in order to save the life of the sheep. The hireling abandons. The good shepherd protects. The hireling is unconcerned. The good shepherd is intimately acquainted. And finally, the hireling scatters. The good shepherd gathers together. Jesus says in verse 16 that he has other sheep that are not of this fold, and he must bring them in also. So when Jesus talks about this fold, who's he talking about? Who is he talking to? It's the Israelites, right? So he's talking to the Israelites and he's saying, I have other sheep other than you, the Israelites, and I must bring them in also. The good news here, the other sheep, that's you. The Gentiles, the ones who are outside the commonwealth, of Israel. There's a beautiful passage that describes this so, so well in Ephesians. So if you would keep your finger in John, but go to Ephesians chapter 2, and I want us to look at that together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Here Paul describes the significance of what Jesus just said when he talks about gathering this other fold together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, therefore, remember that you, the Gentiles, were formerly, excuse me, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh, who were called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near with the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier by of, of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is in the law of the commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. So as I read that, I look at that and say, so there's really no such thing as Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Okay? I even look at that verse and I say, there's no such thing as Methodist Christians, Baptist Christians, Bible Church Christians, because really the only true Christian is a Christian that is following Christ, who is a part of one flock and sees him as the only shepherd. They are the ones for whom the good shepherd has died. Then beginning in verse 17, if you'll go back to John, we'll see how he gives some additional information about this most important sacrifice. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. Now, let me just tell you here that the the statement being made by Jesus is not suggesting that he earned God's love by dying on the cross. That's not what he's saying. The, the love of God is not dependent on the cross. The love of God is what is displayed on the cross. So if you ever ask the question, does God love me? <laughs> then you look to the cross and find your answer. Look to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and know that God's love knows no boundary. That the bond is unbreakable. And he will even go as far as laying down his own life in order to save yours. As Paul tells the Romans. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much does God love you? Well, the cross is what answers that question. But Jesus goes on to clarify. He says, no one has taken my life from me, but I lay it down in my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. So Jesus wants us to understand here that those thieves and robbers who come to steal and kill and destroy, they will not rob him of his life. They will not take something of his without his consent. Because if that were the case, it would diminish the magnitude of his love. It may be an admirable sacrifice, but if he really didn't have a choice, and perhaps there was a way out, then maybe he would have taken it. It would be love with a question mark. Leaving us to wonder, how far would he really go if he had the choice? Well, Jesus wants us to know that he did have that ability to choose, and the cross was his choice. He was constrained only by his love, And his actions were not forced. To put this into perspective, just think about gifts of love that you receive. And and let me ask you a question. When you receive those gifts that are given for a reason compared to those that are motivated only by love itself, which is most meaningful to you? For example, moms, what's more significant to you? The flowers that you get on Mother's Day? Or the sweet bouquet that your child brings in from outside one day for no reason at all? It's obvious, right? 
Well, that's the love of Christ who laid down his life motivated purely by his divine love. He was not forced or coerced or manipulated. It was his idea and his choice to do what he did on your behalf. God's love was demonstrated on the cross, but but it didn't end there. You see, if the cross is the end of the story, that would be like a dad who stepped into the path of an oncoming car for no apparent reason. His kids are safely playing in the yard. Everybody's fine when all of a sudden he makes the decision that ends his life needlessly. There's no love in a death that has no purpose. But everything changes if that same dad sees his two-year-old son now walking into the path of that same oncoming car. This time he goes out and sacrifices his life in order to save the life of that child. The loss would be tragic, tragic, but, but not without purpose. Because an exchange was made when he gave his life in order to save the life of his child. Well, the same is true with Christ. An exchange was made where his life was willfully given in order that your life might be saved. And Jesus says that he gave his life actually knowing that he would take it back again. And and here's why that's important. Christ can only fulfill his promise to save you if if his existence is not eliminated by his death. Christ can only fulfill his promise to save you if his existence is not eliminated by his death. In other words, your salvation is not secured by his death alone. You are made alive because of the resurrection. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, if Christ had not been raised, in other words, if the cross is the end of the story, then your faith is worthless and you remain in your sins. Peter actually affirms the same importance of the resurrection when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And here's how. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection is what gives purpose to the sacrifice of Christ. He gave his life knowing that he would take it back again so that we could be born again to a living hope of eternal life. The hireling scatters. The good shepherd gathers together. The the hireling abandons. The good shepherd protects. The hireling is unconcerned. The good shepherd is intimately acquainted. Jesus' point is powerful. And it culminates all that he said up to this point describing who he is to these people and as a result it it creates quite a stir in fact there's a lot of dissension and division within this group now that jesus has said what he said in fact let's look at that together verse 10 chapter 10 verse 19 john 10 19 says there arose a division again among the jews because of these words and many of them were saying he has a demon And is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not sayings of one who's demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? A division 
arose again. This is actually the third time in John's gospel where this decision about Jesus actually creates a division among the people. And I want you to notice that there were only two groups, two options, as the people examined and considered what Jesus had to say. They said either one, he's demon-possessed, or two, he's who he says he is. And based on your conclusion, there are really only two responses, to either reject him as insane or to worship him as God. The people who heard Jesus speak had to make that decision. And even as you and I hear the same words that he spoke, so must we. Because Jesus leaves no room for people to admire him as a good teacher or to respect him as a prophet or even to look to him as a good moral guide. Everything he has revealed about himself declares that he is God. He is the bread of life, the creator and sustainer of all life. He is the light of the world, revealing the only path for our deliverance. He is the door, the only means by which we enter into the kingdom of God. He is the good shepherd, laying down his life in order that we might be saved. He is the I am, the eternal God, ever-present, never-ending. And worship is the only right response to the spirit-enabled understanding of that truth. So let me ask you, what's your decision? Is Jesus insane or is he God? Do you walk away or do you worship? You see, the good shepherd has gone to great lengths to give you good news. He's carefully communicated, as we've seen, with both words and images that make his identity unmistakable, his purpose undeniable, his love incomparable. As Bill mentioned, John will close in his gospel by saying that these things have been written so that you might know that and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Everything we learn about the person and work of Christ has this end in mind so that you might believe and you might have life in his name. As we finish up, I want to go back to one of the Psalms I mentioned earlier, Psalm 23, probably the most famous passage in all of Scripture. But I think it becomes even more penetrating when we see how those words of that psalm are fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. So I'm going to ask you to do something this morning, and, and I'm going to try to make that connection for you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to just sit back and listen, okay? You might want to just close your eyes and picture this in your mind, but I want you to listen to the words of Psalm 23 with that connection with Christ in mind. Listen to the hope of David's psalm fulfilled in the life of Christ and experienced by those who've chosen to follow him. And and speaking of choosing to follow him, remember that that choice is a day-to-day choice, sometimes a moment-by-moment decision to put our trust and to follow him. And the words of this psalm matter because they tell us the impact of what that decision is in the life of those who trust him. So just listen. The Lord is my shepherd, the bread of life, and I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures as I enter through the door and walk in the presence of his loving care. He leads me beside the still waters. He is the light of the world. He restores my soul and he guides me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death where thieves come to steal and kill and destroy, I fear no evil, for you are with me. You are the good shepherd, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows because you have come that I might have life and have it abundantly. Surely goodness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life. For by the power of your resurrection will I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the links to which you went to both describe, communicate, and demonstrate your love for us. Thank you for the images that you used that were clearly meaningful to the audience to which you spoke, but I pray this morning equally as meaningful to us. Help us to see that uh, there is so much that is fulfilled in the promises that you made about yourself through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, who laid down his life for us, his sheep. And so, Father, I pray that, uh, that we come to a place where we recognize this and we respond as only we rightly can, and that is in worship. And not just what we do when we sing songs on Sunday morning. I pray, Father, that for every person here, myself included, that when we leave this place, that our life continues to be an act of worship. Honoring you as our shepherd. Following you where you lead us. Hearing your voice in your word. And being committed to following the direction that you have for our life according to your purpose and design because of your goodness in our lives wanting to give us not just life, but life abundantly. Father, we anticipate and look forward to the day when we will share in this supper that we celebrated this morning inside the gates of heaven with the Good Shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. We worship and praise you. And it's in your most holy name that we ask these things. Amen. Thanks. Have a great day.